0: Welcome to the Military Child Education Coalition podcast, the show that highlights a wide range of challenges and triumphs that our military-connected kids experience. My name is Nikki Harrison, and I'll be your host today. We would like to say thank you for the support of the spouses of Joint Base McGuire Dix-Lakehurst for this episode. I am so excited to have joining me Major General Peggy Wilmoth, Army Retired, and Air Force retired Colonel Margaret Cope joining me today. I'm really excited to have you here, and I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves. I'll start with you, Major General Wilma. Thanks for having us today. I am
1: a veteran of the Army Reserve for 35 years. I'm currently a professor of nursing at UNC Chapel Hill, and I am the mother of a reservist, and therefore a grandmother of two reserve component children. So the topic we're going to discuss today is near and dear to my heart, because it affects my grandkids.
2: We're delighted to be here, and I am currently an independent consultant in national security. I work on the areas of gender equity, national service, and national security reform, and that I also am involved with Reserve Officers Association that supports all of the reserve components, Army, Air Force, Marines, Navy. Coast Guard, and Space Force, as well as the National Guard, the Army Guard, and the Air Force National Guard. I am closely affiliated with the STARS board standing together for America's reservists. And we support the families with our school kit that we'll talk about a little bit more later, and also want to educate the public
0: on the reserve component and the special issues that are involved with the reserve component. Thank you both for joining me again. And thank you for your service. I'd like to make sure that I say that, that thank you for your service and the fact that you continue to serve. So we appreciate that so much. So I think first is really talking with our listeners about who those reserve component connected children and their families are, because I think identifying them is really important and significant. So who are they? They are
1: your neighbors. They're in your scout troops. They are in your churches. They, you see them everywhere, and we are invisible in many ways. I know when my son was deployed on the invasion force in 03, I lived in Charlotte, North Carolina at the time, and I had yellow ribbons around my trees, and my neighbors were clueless. I was living in a civilian community, and that is where reserve component and guard children live. We live in civilian communities away from military installations, and that's often why we are invisible in schools and in our communities.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. And I like that you said invisible. There's a nature of invisibility that comes with the reserve component families. And as someone who's uh, from an active duty family, it, it took me a really long time to be aware of those reserve families that are around and understanding uh, how different that the lifestyle is for them compared to active duty, but still very important. So I think that's really important. So where are they located? Are they everywhere? Pretty much, yes. <laughs>
2: yeah. Oftentimes, they'll be around the installation, but then they often are estates away, or in some situations, overseas. And not as often overseas, but they can live pretty much anywhere that they wish to live, as
0: long as they can fulfill their duties as a reservist. And just to explain to our listeners the difference between reservists and guardsmen and, like, the one that dr- maybe drills on the weekends once a month. I think that's something to we talk about. All, we all do it, yeah, a little it differently. <laughs> but the one difference is the National Guard is
1: Title 32 into the federal code. And their governor actually is their commander when they are in the Title 32 drill status. So they typically drill one weekend a month. Type reservists, to use it narrowly, are those Title Ten reservists, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Space Force. Coast Guard's Title 42, or Title 14, they are also federal. They're also reservists within the Coast Guard. So there's the Title 32 Guard, and they are in all 50 states and the territories. Okay. And then reservists can be, we actually have Army Reserve units in Europe. There are Army Reserve elements
0: in Europe. So it is not just within the the 50 states. And I think it's important to define all of the different categories as well, because I think we get caught up. I live in Texas, and so I'm always used to the Army National Guard. That's where I'm used to seeing mostly. And in it, there's really all different types. And so I think that's really important to talk about. So why does it matter to identify who these children are? Because I know we're really talking about supporting these reserve component connected children. Why is it important to identify who they are?
2: Many of them have the same issues that the active duty have. Usually they're not transitioning as much. Oftentimes reserve families will stay in the location forever but I know that many organizations focus on the transitions between assignments and the reserve component usually doesn't do that much. But the children still have similar issues of support from the community and the school system, especially during deployments, because at that time, it's almost identical to the active duty situation.
1: There the- Families don't necessarily are not as well grounded in military culture on the reserve side as they are on the active duty side. Even if mom or dad goes to a long school, let's say the Sergeant Major's Academy and they're out at Fort Bliss for several months, they're still gone. And the partner lived, left at home still has to pick up all the slack, but they don't have the same degree of access to resources as does an active duty family. And again, I lived in Charlotte, 90 miles from Fort Jackson and 90 miles from what is now Fort Liberty, the old Fort Bragg. So I had no access to any resources that were tangible that would help me cope. So they almost need more supports during times of stress than do our active component family members because they're so isolated and because no one around them understands the military culture. And as it, to illustrate the lack of attention, we did a, of my research colleagues and I did a scoping review of the literature looking at effects of deployment on reserve component children over, and the literature published over 20 years. Out of over 1,000 piece articles published in the research literature, 17 focused solely on reserve component children and family. They found that RC kids actually had greater anxiety than did active duty children, because they're out there in no man's land with no one providing support. Example, when I was doing a visiting a Yellow Ribbon event, a mother in the National Capital Region was talking about the fact that her child would sit in a corner at school and cry, and no one in the school knew anything about what daddy being deployed meant, and she could not find a child therapist to support them here in the National Capital Region because of the dearth of behavioral health support available to them. Army RE Reserve was a, a resorting to using given hour volunteers to provide mental health support to children whose family members had, were deployed. How, that, that doesn't speak well about the resources available to reserve component families. We clearly need to do better. They have as many, if not more,
0: needs than those on active duty. Absolutely. And I like how you talked about access, because I know even on the active duty side, there's always this talk of access to health care, access to certain types of benefits, and things like that nature. But it sounds like reserve component families need the, the same access and support as the active duty families. Oftentimes,
1: in the last 20 years during deployments, if I was on active duty, let's say I had a child with a chronic disease like asthma or diabetes, and I went on active duty. Maybe my civilian employer did not include continue my Blue Cross Blue Shield. My family's now on TRICARE Prime. What happens if that child's pediatrician doesn't take TRICARE Prime? That means they've got to find a new provider who may then change their medications that they've been well-managed on, and they may have an exacerbation of their asthma, and then I come off deployment and we go back to our other provider. If they're still taking new patients, by the way, and so reserve component families get yinged and yanged outside of the healthcare system from provider to provider. Active duty don't have that, and they have that that MHS Genesis, the health record that follows them, yes. that a reservist doesn't necessarily
0: have yes. for their children. Yes. 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 The genesis. <laughs> Very familiar with that. System. Yeah. It's funny when you were talking about the access and the continuity of care that sometimes lapses when you're a reserve component family and you're going from different a different status. And you know what? It made me think about a colleague that I had many years ago who was a reservist and was called on to active duty and lost her civilian job. And so it was very interesting. And now there's, we have mechanisms in place that are supposed to prevent that, right? There's laws that like prevent that from happening, but it's a reality and it was a reality, this was probably about 15 years ago. And that was really challenging for her family uh, because you get called up to active duty, you do that, you come back and now you don't have a job. And so now that affects your livelihood, right? And everything. Or I was just talking to a colleague
1: at lunch, what if you're a physician and you're in a, they say an anesthesiologist and you're making five, $600,000 a year and you go on active duty and your salary's cut to maybe 100,000 a year? Your family is still living a lifestyle based on that higher income. And that happened a lot in Desert Shield, Desert Storm where healthcare providers in particular, dentists and other physicians lost practices. Because wow. of the, the delta in income and the time that they were deployed. So that drove some of the changes for the last 20 years, but it still is a problem. That just made me, I just thought
2: about that as well. And then you have some employers that are fantastic, though. Yes, they're uh, on. Boeing
0: is one and, and some of the airlines yeah. as well that are very supportive of their reserve coming on it. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that's it's great that they have that. I know we were talking about how do we identify these children, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the MSI, the Military Student Identifier, and how does it assist with that, and then talk a little bit about how every state is doing it just a little bit differently. Okay, the Military Student Identifier has been a real blessing
2: for many. We're still working on some aspects of it. Initially, we had hoped that it would cover all military-affiliated children, but in the initial 2015 variety, only the active duty were included. And since then, we have included the reserve component, but the states oversee the program, and each state has their own special way of dealing with it, and there's no enforcement mechanism, so it's somewhat a voluntary program, but there are many ways that you can identify the child when they first enroll in the school, and then if they update their computer, then oftentimes that will trigger the identifier to be on the application, and then certainly the parents can identify the child as well, so we're still working on a lot of that. It's really been very helpful. In fact, my research
1: team and I just finished doing a small survey of North Carolina school nurses Um, in in the middle of COVID, so we didn't get the kind of response rate we were hoping for. We were heartened to know that school nurses in communities that were not military-affiliated were well aware of the MSI and that military student identifier in their learning management system that they call PowerSchool was able to identify those children. The difference is that it, the military student identifier will direct federal dollars for active component family members to those school districts. It does not do the same, it does not drive dollars from the federal level for reserve component students. So that will need to be a state by state conversation with state legislators if they wish to uh, drive federal dollars or state dollars two school districts that reach a certain benchmark number of uh, reserve component connected children in them. And that's something that I hope to start working on in the state of North Carolina. And raising awareness, of course, we take, it takes seven to 10 years for anything to become legislation and get enacted. But But again, it does not drive dollars for reserve component connected children as it does for the federally connected children.
0: Yeah. And it's funny, as a recent retired family, I feel like I don't know what to call myself now. (laughs) But as a has a my spouse just retired, and my eyes have been opened on the veteran side, the non active duty side now to how much is lost, how much is it's just there's a There's some challenges there that I'm sure it's obvious that the reserve families are facing uh, as well. I think that's another area of
1: federal work can be done is looking at how do you do a VSI, veteran student identifier, because many of those children are adjusting to a new lifestyle. But they may have a living with a parent who they have to help provide care for, and they bring their own trauma and life experiences into the school system that school should be aware of and knowledgeable about. So I do think that is another front that we should work on. Yeah, absolutely.
2: And then there could be the very positive aspect, too, of the Purple Star in school program and recognizing veterans so that the student body would know more about the veterans that all that you
0: know, military service. <laughs> yes, <Yeah, laughs> service. Absolutely. And I think I was uh, saying a little bit earlier, we've recently moved to Texas. And I've, of course, I'm a researcher by nature. So I'm always like reading legislation. I don't know how many people are doing that. And so I, it was nice to see that they have a system called PEMS. That they use their enrollment system where they're trying to cast the net wider, right? They're trying to capture more of that military connected student population. So that they're getting the active duty, they're getting the veteran kids, they're getting the maybe the retired kids that are veteran but retired, the reserve, the guard, so that they can fully be able to support that entire population, so I found that pretty pretty interesting myself. What needs to go
1: along with that then is education for the school system, for the staff, not just for the teachers, but the administrators, the school counselors, the school nurses. Many kids will go to a school nurse and talk about being in pain, a stomach ache, blah, 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 but it's really something else going on in their lives. And so I believe, as I'm a nurse, so therefore, I believe school nurses should be a part of this conversation, and we need to do more to support their awareness and education and caring for military-affiliated children.
0: That's important. I, that's the first time, I guess, I've really heard someone say nurses. I always talk about administrators, and we talk about the counselors and maybe the social workers if a school has a licensed social worker, but the nurse nurses being at the table as well as just as important, because you're right, the kids are going to the, the nurse is one of those first
1: faces. And <laughs> we're non-threatening. They can tell us anything.
2: Yeah. So really, we could be a really good facilitator yeah. and advocate for a child. Yeah. And also the educators could use more training when they go to schools of education in their universities as such, because there's a very limited amount of programs that include the military child
0: there as well. Yeah. Very and, good. and updated, you know, the continuing education program. Absolutely. So what are some of the unique risks that these families face? Because since we, we've talked about the there being a lack of access to certain services and resources, so what are some of those unique risks? We don't know. Because right. there's no funding to support the research that needs to be done for
1: reserve component children. The little we do know is that they exhibit more anxiety than their active duty counterparts. But there's very little data on which to say what it, what are the unique differences between RC connected children and active component connected children. NIH doesn't have any kind of federal funding program for that. The Tri Service Nursing Research Program, where I might look for some funding dollars, doesn't focus on reserve component children. DOD has funded a lot of RAND Corporation and other entity, Mm -hmm. similar entity research, but they focus primarily on active component families. And so we are left out of the conversation. We are left out of the data collection. And um, I will be the Distinguished Nurse Scholar in Residence at the National Academy of Medicine this year, and that is going to be one of my um, bully pulpits, if you will, for the next year to drive home the fact that we cannot we don't know what those differences are because no one has funded that research.
0: Wow, that's that's really eye-opening to hear that that there's uh, a lack of research for that. So, well, congratulations and go for yeah. go forth with that with that research with that research. So, so what are some of the impacts of deployment on our reserve component families? I know you know, we talk about gone is gone, and regardless of if it's a combat deployment or it's a separation or time away, there's still an impact. Mm-hmm. Is variable. One of the having been
1: a parent of a child who deployed, and I deployed many other people's children, but when my son was deployed, reserve units in particular from the Army side were cobbled together from people from all over the country into a reserve unit, let's say in Greensboro, North Carolina. So if you've got a family support program, you can never get together face-to-face because you got people from California, North Carolina, all over the place. How do you do family support when you are not, you're not co-located? Phone calls are nice, but that doesn't really help somebody. So I do think, and I know MSEC was involved in the Family readiness study that the National Academy of Medicine did a few years ago, and they proposed some changes to family support, but it didn't really address the reserve component family and how what we might need might not look like what the active component has. And I don't know that anyone has ever really done a deep dive on that either.
2: There was a research study that showed that the reserve component has more children in the age group of 6 to 12. And we were thinking that ways that we could support children in that age group because they were mostly school-aged children. And so that's why we developed the reserve school kit. And that is for providing a means so that the family can contact the school and let them know that their family member is going to be deployed. And also to provide some resources for the educators and the school nurses and the psychologists and support staff to the individuals so that they can support the family in this deployment transition, at both to and back from deployment. But what the school kit component is an actual zippered school kit, and it's got information on the inside along with a pencil and a ruler for the family members to take when they go through a deployment line, a pre-deployment or at the deployment time, so they can take it home and their family members. And to date, we've distributed almost 5,000 of the kits, and we've gotten extremely positive feedback for it.
0: That's fantastic. I think that's important. And I was just thinking, are when you have those deployments or times where they're put together, I know in the Marine Corps, it's an individual augment. My husband's been one of those before. And I had all get brought together in this like team. And now it's like time for let's go. None of the families know each other. And I just think how helpful it would be for our active duty families, since there's a shared experience, even with our reserve component families, to bring them in, pull them under the wing and do some of that education, like you said, with Military lingua oh, and culture and all these things that um, sometimes uh, they're just not uh, privy to because it's just different. Uh, so I think that would be really helpful too to talk about how there there is a shared experience and we're all serving. Our service just may look a little bit different, and so I think that's really important. So I know you talked about the toolkit. But how else can we best support these children and families, and are there other resources that may be available to them? The Military Child Education Coalition's support
2: of the Purple Star program is fantastic, too. As we mentioned before, a positive experience with the veterans, but currently serving are really good, too. And to bring the the veterans and the currently serving in for special military events so that the school system can see the veterans and the military presence
0: in their community. Yeah, I think that's p- important. And I like how you said currently serving. I feel like I I fall into saying active duty, but currently serving captures an entire group mm-hmm. that are serving. So I feel like I'm going to remember that.
2: <laughs> and there are some summer camps
0: yeah.
1: that I know that could be very helpful. Yes. I, when I did some interviews with some college age students and asked them to reflect back, on the time their reserve component-affiliated parent deployed, one of them talked about the fact that she went to a summer camp. And because they live somewhere in Ohio, again, as a reserve component family, Mm -hmm. no military people around them, when she was able to go to one of these summer camps, it was extremely helpful for her to see and know that there are other children like her. So if there is a way to support a camp experience for children, for them to come together and understand, That there are other kids whose parents serve who are mostly civilian
0: otherwise would be a helpful experience for them. She found it very helpful. That's fantastic that there's that. And I know that NMFA, the National Military Family Association, they have their Operation Purple camps. So that are... Yeah. And they are, and I have actually been to one and they are volunteered at one. They are fantastic. So it's, that's a great piece of advice or recommendation is some of those camps for support for those children as well. I just appreciate you being here with me today and and talking about such an important topic, a topic that I feel like even myself really need to be more educated about. And I think our listeners as well. So I think this was really fantastic. So thank you.
1: Thank you. you. Appreciate it.
0: I'd like to thank Major General Peggy Wilmoth, Army Retired, and Air Force Retired Colonel Margaret Cope for their time today, as I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for listening to the MSEC Podcast, the official podcast of the Military Child Education Coalition. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, and give today's show a five-star rating. And don't forget to leave us a comment on topics you'd like to hear more about. We'd like to give a special thanks again to the spouses of Joint Base McGuire, Dix Lakehurst, for supporting this episode and Consentus Media for audio mixing. I'm Nikki Harrison, and until next time, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.